God's word comes to us this evening through the words of Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be reading just a short piece of Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, which is a direct quote from our Lord Jesus himself. And before we read Matthew 11 together, would you please join me in prayer? Father, we come before your word now and we ask that you would humble us. That we would be willing to receive and believe the words of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we pray that you would draw us to him tonight. And that we would leave this place understanding your grace a tiny bit more. More in love with Jesus our Savior. And ready to show the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear now the words of our Lord and Savior from Matthew 11 starting at verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, um, a little while ago I read about a professional baseball player who was known in his day as the strikeout king. Now he led the entire major leagues in strikeouts, five separate seasons. You would think if you were a professional baseball player at some point, you would at least learn to make contact with the baseball. Might not be a home run or even a a hit, an on-base hit every time, but at least hit the thing. This guy swung and missed so many times that by the end of his career, he had struck out 1,330 times. Personally, I feel kind of bad for the guy. Sounds like he maybe would have had more success selling hot dogs at the concession stand than being one of the players on the field. Read about another guy a while back who wanted people to believe he had great ideas, that he could understand things about the world that would change the world. Which is nice. Great that you think that about yourself, but he was always a little slow on the uptake. When he was a kid, get this, he didn't start speaking any words at all until he was four. And despite his teacher's best efforts, he couldn't read a single word until he was seven. And I applaud a kid with big dreams, but sometimes it breaks your heart when a young boy like this has dreams that obviously go beyond what he's capable of. 
Then there's another guy who worked in a newspaper, and apparently his ideas, his big dreams, were also a little bad. To be a good writer, you have to be able to use your imagination, and that's where he fell short. You have to be creative and interesting in the way you write news articles. But this guy struggled so much that the editor of his newspaper didn't just say, hey, buddy, you've got to pick it up. You've got to try a little harder. No, his editor came to him and straight up told him, you lack imagination and have no good ideas. And if someone has worked their way up to being the editor of the entire newspaper, it's usually because they have a good sense of what's good and what's not. So I'd take his word for it. Three guys that I personally feel sorry for. A baseball player, an ambitious but struggling student, the failed newspaper writer. They all had dreams. They worked so hard at something, they just don't have what it takes. And if you ever want to check my work on this and go read about the poor guys yourself sometime, the strikeout king was some guy named Babe Ruth. The struggling student high school dropout, a guy by the name of Albert Einstein, the guy who lacked imagination and had no good ideas, some goofball by the name of Walt Disney. Now, if I hadn't told you those three names at the end, of the strikeout king, the slow learner, the guy with no imagination, first off, you would have left going, well, why in the world did you tell us all about them if you didn't even say their names? Secondly, you would have thought, well, okay, Nice that they failed at something, but people fail all the time, and that's that. But now that I mention their names, you're saying, oh, okay, there's some sort of trick, way to make those amazing people sound like failures and lie to us tonight. But here's what I want you to get from those stories and why I didn't reveal their names up front. Because I want to be clear, I didn't lie to you at all. All I did was tell you facts about those people. Those were not made up. But I told you the truth in a way that made you think, that misled you about how to think about those people, that misled you about who they truly were, even though the facts were true. It made them sound like the kind of people you obviously know they're not. But this isn't the first time in your entire life that you found out the truth, and only the truth, can be twisted until it sounds like the opposite of what's true. If that wasn't just a fact of life, there would be no such thing as a good or a bad lawyer. Just get any lawyer. Go to the courtroom, state the facts of the case, and that's that. But every day, rich people get away with things they probably did because they pay some guy $2,000 an hour to make the truth sound like, wow, maybe it didn't really happen that way. And unfortunately, that doesn't just happen in courtrooms. I wish it didn't happen there, but it doesn't even end there. It can happen in church. It happens with God's Word all the time. Where people, unfortunately, people like me, hopefully not me, maybe I've done it before too, where I stand up in front of a group of people looking at the truth of the Bible and saying, well, 
you have to believe me, I'm just saying what's written here, that it can come off in a way that, yeah, you said all facts about the Bible, but it felt like a complete misdirection of the heart of the one who had us preserve it and who calls it his holy word. See, we have a high and holy calling as people who believe in Jesus to talk about and show God's truth in the way it was meant to be shown. And I feel like this is an increasingly important message in a culture that is getting increasingly hostile. It feels like every day, more and more Christians are saying, all right, I've had it. No more Mr. Nice Guy. No more Mr. Nice Girl. It's time to take a stand. And I would agree, it's time to take a stand. But if we stand as those who follow Jesus, then taking a stand should mean looking like the one who called us to be like him. So who was Jesus? Well, first of all, he was the kind of guy that everybody flocked to, especially the people who were down and out. Crowds of people who were hurting and sick and injured flocked to him, followed him around the countryside wherever he went. He had this way about him that made the outcasts of society feel like they could even approach him, which was never true of any other religious leader or teacher in that day. He once noticed a lame man at the pool of Bethsaida when no one else would help him or even look at him. Jesus would walk right up to lepers that weren't even allowed to live in the same village as everybody else. And he would touch them. An important rabbi, teacher of that day, would never ever waste their time with little children. They weren't old enough to understand anything yet, so why bother? But Jesus did. In fact, one time Jesus rebuked his disciples when they were trying to keep the little children away from him. Jesus talked to, hung out with, had dinner with people that most serious God followers of the day wouldn't have touched with a 10-foot pole. The Samaritan people were despised by the Jewish people, and yet Jesus once goes to a well and he asks a Samaritan woman for a drink and then has the longest recorded conversation in the Gospels with her. And this Samaritan woman was so surprised that Jesus would even acknowledge she existed that this is what she says in John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John tacks on the end, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus hung out with the outcasts of society enough that more than once, this was the response from the religious leaders. This is from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You can hear the disgust in their voices. And to top it all off, one time Jesus let a prostitute anoint his feet with perfume. 
And as she cried and kissed his feet, the well-respected religious leader that he was eating with had this to say about it. From Luke 7, he said, If this Jesus man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. But you see, Jesus knew exactly what kind of woman she was. And he showed love to her, respect to her. That he was willing to have compassion on anyone, no matter who they were, what they had done. He humbled himself to serve others. And not only did Jesus pick a bunch of nobodies to be his closest followers and disciples, some of who were the worst of society to begin with, but he demonstrated his type of leadership to them by kneeling down one night and washing their dirty feet before supper. And if you know the story of Jesus, you know that even all of those acts of love and kindness don't hold a candle to what he does at the end of the Gospels. Even though he knew it was coming, he willingly goes to Jerusalem, allows himself to be arrested by his enemies, falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit, spit on, laughed at by an angry mob, beaten by soldiers as they mocked him, forced to carry a cross up a hill that that he would be nailed to and hung on until he died. And even as he hung dying on that cross, an excruciating death, He heard the criminals insulting him. He looked down at the soldiers who were cutting up his clothes and dividing the cloth. And this is what he prayed. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Brothers and sisters, our passage for tonight is short and sweet. Pretty simple. A simple invitation to come, to join ourselves to the yoke of Jesus, like two oxen plowing a field together, to join ourselves to him and learn from him. But the reason I just spent most of the message not talking about the passage, not talking about the invitation of Jesus, but instead what he acted like throughout the Gospels, is because I want you to realize that Jesus is the kind of Savior that you should want to come to when you're weary, when you're burdened. I want you to know that when Jesus extends his hand toward you saying, please come to me, that he is the one, the only one, that you should always want to accept that invitation from. Because the invitation means nothing if the person who gives it can't be trusted. Think about it this way. If the person that you know most in your life who's most likely to gossip whatever juicy tidbit they hear from the community, oh, I'm going to share that with everybody, and they come to you one day and say, you know, if you've ever got something going on in your life, I'm here for you. I'm I'm an ear. I'm just, I'm a listening ear. Thanks, but no thanks, because I know everyone will know by the end of the week. Great invitation, but I don't trust the person giving it, so it means nothing. 
And unfortunately, Jesus' followers haven't always done such a great job of proving that their Savior is gentle and lowly, humble in heart. So people can get the wrong impression and think that that invitation isn't worthwhile because they don't know if they can trust the man, the Messiah, behind it. Now, when I went to my first church out of seminary, at Moline CRC, um, I met a man at the church who was actually on his deathbed from cancer. And he asked me if I could come over to his house, and I ended up visiting him three or four times there before he passed. But the reason he wanted me to come and meet him right away before he died was because he had a brother who lived in the community, his younger brother, Gary. He said, Gary grew up in Moline just like I did, went to church there every Sunday. And then he got drafted, and he went to Vietnam. And it changed him. And he came back, and he would not darken the door of a church for any reason. It didn't matter. He never came back to Moline for a single Sunday. He sits in his house up on the hill just a mile away from mine and drinks away his sorrows, and nobody ever sees him. And he said, I know this is a lot to ask from a guy that you are just meeting now, but could you try to reach out to my brother? I know my time here is done I tried, it didn't work. So I promised him I would try, do my best, as a young pastor that felt very in over my head. (laughs) But it turns out, as the Holy Spirit of God likes to do, um, our paths crossed a few months later. And we instantly connected. He grew up on a dairy farm, so did I. Turns out his favorite pastime in the whole world was playing fast-pitch softball. And I pitched fast-pitch softball in Moline the whole time I was a pastor there. So right away, it was kind of the walls came down and, ah, you're a good guy, I can talk to you. So I'd stop by once in a while. And then about two years in, Gary got sick. Went to a nursing home. I'd stop there occasionally and visit him. And finally, one of the last times I visited him, he was willing to open up and talk about faith. But in that moment a man who grew up the first 18 years of his life in a a solid Christian home, Christian Reformed Church, Christian school, teaching him what grace was, what Matthew 11 meant. All he would say to me was, I've seen some things, I've done some things, and all I can think now is, I guess I just pray for forgiveness and hope maybe somehow it's there. He knew the invitation of Matthew 11 by heart. He'd known it for years. But he didn't know if the one who offered it would really accept him in the end. So God gave me the privilege of being able to share it one more time, (laughs) pray with him one more time, as he said, okay, I'm going to try to trust that I'm in the grip of grace. So that's a story from the beginning of my time at Moline, then just one more from the end. When we left Moline, when we went to our second church, I got a wonderful email from um, a young woman who was an early teen when I came to the church, who was just going off to college when we left. And she said, I just want to thank you, really appreciated you and Abby and your time here. 
And she said, you know, some other sermons that I'd heard in my life, some other messages as I grew up, just made me feel like I might as well not go to church anymore. I can't live up to that. I can't live up to that Jesus. I can't have a relationship with that Jesus because of who I am. But I feel like at times you showed me that maybe I can. Hands down, the best compliment I've ever gotten (laughs) as a pastor. And if that's the only good thing I've ever done, that's enough for me. For someone to say, I used to look at the Gospels and think, I I love the invitation. I love the come to me if you're weary and burdened, because that's me. But can I trust the one who says it? So brothers and sisters, I hope, I pray that you know Jesus is the real deal. That grace, whatever your favorite definition of it is, whatever it truly means in the end, because none of us fully get it, it's for you. It's for you from the one, the only one who can be trusted with your heart, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done. So I want to end this evening, end the message this evening with the words of Jesus one more time. The invitation of Jesus one more time. And please know, it's for you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me For I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thanks be to God and amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for being the one we can trust with our hearts, with our souls. For the one through whom the world was created to say that I'm gentle, I'm humble, I'm lowly in heart. Lord, that makes no sense to me. That blows my mind. But I praise you for being a God who is so much more, so much better than anything I could dream up on my own. Lord, I don't know what each and every person is going through here tonight. But you do. And I know from your promise that you embrace them, that this invitation is for them. So please, by your spirit, help them feel that truth, believe that truth, and rest in it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for revealing to us not just who you are, but what you're like. Because what we find is amazing. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And now, would you please respond to God's word with me as we rise, embody your spirit to sing, Revive Us Again from the Blue Hymnal 295. 295, the first three verses.
people of God, as we go from this place, I pray you go knowing the Lord goes with you. The Savior of the world, the Savior of your soul, goes with you and is for you. The one who describes himself as gentle, lowly, humble in heart, is there to lift you up, to give you rest, to teach you his ways. And I pray that as you go to be his hands and feet, the best you can by his grace, that he reveals that love to you in a special way this week. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Brothers and sisters, do not be afraid. For our Savior has overcome the world. Amen.